Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, there's still Bibles on the table there. I had to check first before I told you so people don't go back there and say, why'd you tell me Bibles on the table? You made me look like a fool in front of my friends. Anywho. This morning, we are continuing our study through the book of Ephesians, and today we're going to be looking at part two of a study I've titled, The Household of God. Our main text is Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. And in part two, we're going to be focusing in on verse 19, but let's read verses 11 through 18 just to keep the context of what we're going to be looking at this morning. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, verse 11 He says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, verse 14, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. As we consider what Paul has written so far in chapter 2, he started in the first three verses really by giving a clear picture of the human condition without Christ. We looked at this uh, several weeks back. Dead in sin and trespasses, slaves to this world and and Satan and our flesh, condemned as children of wrath. Things weren't looking very good for us. Not a good picture that, that Paul paints. And into that depressing and dark and, and hopeless sort of picture of the human condition without Jesus' salvation, we saw what God, in his rich mercy and his great love for us, has done for us, making us alive, saving us by his grace, seeding us with Christ, making us new creations in Christ Jesus, who are his masterpieces that he's molding and shaping, masterpieces that he's prepared good works for. And after speaking to the human condition in general terms early in the chapter, he went on to speak directly to the Gentiles in the church, giving insight specifically into their spiritual reality before Christ saved them, that a divide existed between them and Jewish people, that they had been without Christ, they had been without the covenants of promise, they had been without hope, they had been without God in the world. Lots of withouts. But Jesus changed all of that for Gentiles. He changed it by shedding his blood upon the cross because his blood 
And because his blood brought those who were once far off near, guys, we can testify just like these Gentiles in the Ephesian church can, that that though we were without, we're not anymore. Jesus has changed all of those things about our lives. We may have thought that we had hope, but it wasn't. It was more wishful thinking. We may have thought that we had God, but we had a God of our own making. We may have thought we had some sort of savior in our lives, and maybe for some, that savior was ourselves. We we were our own savior, and we found out, man, that savior stinks. And that's not us anymore, because now we have Christ. We have the savior, the only savior. We have God, the true God. We have hope. Confident expectation because we have sure promises that have been laid out for us and preserved for us in the pages of Scripture. And not only did Jesus do that for the Gentiles, but Jesus, as we saw in our reading just now, he's also broken down, he's abolished, he's put to death the enmity, the wall of separation that existed between Gentiles and Jews through the sacrifice of himself upon the cross, and has made the two one. He's created in himself one new man, one new humanity. We could say one new race of people from the two. He's made peace and brought about unity where previously there was only enmity and division, reconciling both Jew and Gentile to God to one another, and now, through Jesus, both Gentiles and Jews have equal access by the Holy Spirit to the Father. And Jesus did all of that. We we talked about this a few weeks back when we were in this previous section of Scriptures that when we think about the things that Jesus did for the, on the cross, we often just, we think about maybe just a few things. We're going, okay, he was our atonement, right? He brought forgiveness. He's brought us salvation. But there's so much more. There is so much more that Jesus accomplished through the cross. There's so much more that he's done for us through his death, that, that Paul is sort of unfolding for us now in these verses. And now in verses 19 through 22, Paul is going to drive all of this home, all the things that he's just been speaking into regarding how important and amazing this unity, this new humanity, this new family is that Jesus died to bring about. And we'll see three things in the closing verses of this chapter, that we've been made a part of. and Today we're going to look at two of those three things, that we've been made a part part of God's kingdom, we've been made a part of God's family, and then next week we're going to consider how we've also been made a part of God's building or his temple. And I love this as we've just considered even in those verses that we read, this aspect of something new that Jesus has done something new he's made one new man right something was broken and and stuff was messed up 
and we couldn't figure it out. And, and Jesus did something completely new for us, bringing us into a new covenant of grace, making us new creations in Christ Jesus. Like it, The list goes on, but Jesus is in the business of doing new things in our lives. And oftentimes we get so focused on the, the things that just, they're the same, that we miss the things that Jesus is doing all the time that are new, new works, new things that he's doing in our hearts, new things that he's doing around us. And sometimes we miss them because we're just, we get so kind of complacent or we get caught up in just sort of the monotony of life that we miss that our Jesus is a, is a God who's in the business of bringing new things about. And we can miss that in, in the things that we feel like can never change, that can never be different. That he's in the business of, of, of inserting himself. <laughs> you ever have somebody insert themselves into situations in your life and you're like, why did you just... Why did you do that? You just butted in. You got, we were in a deep conversation or God, it's, something's going on and it's like, why, what did you just do? It's never that way with Jesus. When he inserts himself, he's going, I want to do something brand new. I want to make things better. I want to bring healing. I want to bring growth. And you and I get to be recipients of that newness all the time. And so with that, let's read verses 19 through 22, and then we'll dig into verse 19. Paul said, now on the heels of talking about this access that both Jew and Gentile have to the Father through Jesus by the Spirit, he says, now therefore, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Last week, we began to consider this subject of the household of God, but doing it with a, a specific lens, seeing the care of God for his household in who he's called to oversee his church, the, the servant leaders who he's entrusted his flock to and, and appointed as elders and, and looking at what God's word says to elders in their role. And, and we also had the, the great joy of celebrating God's faithfulness and care for his house, his church here at CCWC, in recognizing and praying for, for Josh Hughes and Julian DeGracia, who, who God has called and appointed and ordained to come alongside me to help serve you all as elders. But, but today we're going to take an expositional look at verse 19. And, and right away, we see Paul following up on all he had just been speaking into in the previous uh, verses, speaking into this New humanity Jesus has created, Jew and Gentile now one in Christ. And, you know, I think a good question to ask is, you know, what does it mean 
for Jews and Gentiles to be reconciled to God through the cross of Christ, now being one in Christ, with, with those in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, now having access by the Holy Spirit to the Father. Well, from what Paul shares here, it means that those who come to Christ and receive his salvation have been made part of a new kingdom and a new family. And I know even just those two things by themselves might for some of us not automatically bring up some really good feelings. You might be thinking like, dang, like another kingdom? These ones stink. We're looking around our world and we're going like, they all stink. They all, they all just, they're all broken. And it makes sense because there's just broken, sinful people in every nation, every kingdom. Of course it's going to be broken. Of course things are going to stink. Of course things are going to be looking really bleak at different times. And some of us might hear the idea of a new family and you're like, I could barely handle the one I have. <laughs> Some of us not, might, be, might not be feeling that way. Some of us are like, yeah, I love my family. But you might think of a new family, you're like, wait, what? No, what happens to the one I have? I love the one I have. I don't want to give up. You're not giving up anything. That's not that. But for us to understand, as we think of this idea of a new kingdom, maybe put it in a different new nation or new family, to, to kind of like set our historical baggage, if you will, like who we are as people, what we've experienced, lay it aside for a second and consider what this really means for you and me. That when, when Paul is speaking about this new kingdom, a new family, it's not a, it's not a burdensome sort of thing for us. Like, oh crud, now I got to now I got to adapt to a whole new jacked up kingdom or a whole new jacked up family. No, this kingdom is perfect and this family is perfect, although those within it are being perfected. Amen? Guys, we've not only been brought near by the blood of Christ, because just that on it in itself is pretty amazing. We now belong and we have a home. You can bring somebody near and not really welcome them into your family. You can invite somebody into your house and still not provide familial warmth to them. You can treat them as a visitor. God doesn't invite us into his kingdom and then deal with us as sort of second-class citizens a burden upon society. He's going, man, you're full-fledged citizens of my kingdom. When he brings us into his household, he's not going, let's put you in the room, in the far, 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 far back. Actually, we've got this shed in the backyard. Sure, we use it for lawn equipment, but we can fill out a space for you. That's not how he treats us. He's like, well, I bring you into my household, not as a visitor, but as a full-fledged part of the family. 
all the rights as a son or daughter. Let's consider this aspect of us now belonging to God's kingdom. Because Paul tells us we're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. I like what John Stott wrote, a Bible commentator, regarding Paul picturing the, the new Jew-Gentile community as God's kingdom. He said this, and I'm going to quote him later on too, but he said, although he does not develop the metaphor, he appears to be alluding to citizenship of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is neither a territorial jurisdiction nor even a spiritual structure. God's kingdom is God himself ruling his people and bestowing upon them all the privileges and responsibilities which his rule implies. To this new international God-ruled community, which had replaced the Old Testament national theocracy, Gentiles and Jews belonged on equal terms. Paul is writing while the Roman Empire is at the zenith of its splendor. No signs had yet appeared of its coming decline, let alone of its fall. Yet he sees this other kingdom, neither Jewish nor Roman, but international and interracial, as something more splendid and more enduring than any earthly empire. And he rejoices in its citizenship more even than in his Roman citizenship. Its citizens are free and secure. He says the words no longer strangers and sojourners, but citizens emphasize the contrast between the rootlessness of a life outside Christ and the stability of being a part of God's new society. I love that, rootlessness of a life outside of Christ. That's a great insight. I want us to dig in a little bit more. These terms, strangers, foreigners, fellow citizens, they do bring to mind the picture of a nation or a kingdom, but we, we need to know that Paul is using these terms in a spiritual sense because for probably many of the people in the church of Ephesus, if they were to be told they were strangers and foreigners, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm from here. I'm from Ephesus. I'm a Roman citizen. I, I speak the language. I'm part of the culture. There's nothing about me where, where I'm feeling estranged, an outsider, in a physical sense. And so when Paul is using these terms, he's speaking of a, a deeper spiritual element of all of this, right? And this is important for us to get. Because no matter where people are from in the world, no matter their nation, their tribe, their, their language, their skin color, no matter their religious upbringing or lack of it, no matter if man or woman, every person without Christ is a stranger and foreigner, an outsider to God's holy nation, his saints, his holy ones, his kingdom. But every person who has been saved by the grace of Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, is now on the inside, belongs to God's kingdom, now a fellow citizen with the saints, now part of God's holy nation, his saints, 
his kingdom. Now, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, they thought that the kingdom of God belonged to them. They felt like they had a sense of ownership over it. And really, the rest of the Jewish people at that time had this same sort of mindset, that the kingdom of God was theirs sort of automatically because of their ethnicity and, 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 and past history as Jews. The promises of God given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenants that God made with the Jewish people. But in Matthew chapter 21, after giving the religious leaders a, a parable regarding wicked vine dressers, right? The, the owner of the vineyard, which wasn't them, sending delegates to kind of go like, I've got this vineyard, I've put people in charge of it, I'm gonna, I want some of the fruit from it. And the, the vine dressers beating and killing and throwing out and treating horribly those that have been sent by the owner of the vineyard, where finally the owner of the vineyard sends his son, thinking, man, they're going to treat my son well. And him they kill. Jesus, using this whole example, this illustration, this parable, going, God's the owner of the vineyard. It belongs to him. You guys have been sort of leased the vineyard in a sense. You were the ones who were supposed to be directing people to God as the religious leaders of the nation. And yet you stoned and killed the prophets. And when God sent his son, you were going to kill him too. And the interesting thing about this parable, we'll see it at the end of this, is that the religious leaders knew Jesus was speaking this about them. Like they came to that own conclusion from this parable. Look at what we're told in Matthew 21, verses 42 through 45. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? So this is after, this is the end of that parable. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God, notice, will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone shall be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Here's what Jesus was basically saying. You can't have the kingdom of God. It'll never, never be yours. You'll never belong to it. If you reject the king of the kingdom himself. You can't have the kingdom if you don't want the king. And they didn't want the king. They didn't want Jesus. They rejected their Messiah. Notice what Jesus said to the religious leaders in verse 43. The kingdom of God will be taken from you, given to a nation, bearing the fruits of it. So who was this nation that Jesus was giving the kingdom of God to? A new nation, a new people group, a new humanity consisting of people from different nations, different tribes, different tongues who had put their faith in Jesus Christ. This nation Jesus was referring to was the church that he was going to create, that we get to be a part of. 
Peter reinforced this about 30 years after these things we just read about Jesus. In what he wrote in his first letter, we see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. Peter there says, Therefore to you who believe, he, speaking of Jesus, is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the, uh, the, the, the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's a silent G. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Verse 9, but you, speaking to the church, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. This holy nation, Jesus' church, that Jesus gave the kingdom of God to, were once not a people, were once in darkness, but now are the people of God. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, his own special people. These people have put their faith in Jesus. They're the ones who didn't reject the chief cornerstone. They believed in him. They put their faith and trust in Jesus. And it's Jesus' salvation that has changed everything for you and me, including our true homeland and citizenship. Check out what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He wrote, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Before Christ saved us, we all were strangers and foreigners to the kingdom of God. But those who are saved have been given a new citizenship, being, been made part of a new kingdom, a new nation, a new people. And now instead of being outsiders to the kingdom of God, we are now fellow citizens of God's kingdom, who Peter writes about and describes as being pilgrims and sojourners. Passing through this world, living for and eagerly waiting for our true King and Savior, Jesus. Guys, we can love our country. But if our allegiance isn't first and foremost to the kingdom of God, if our priority is not the kingdom of God over every kingdom of mankind, we are doing something wrong. We're doing something or something's out of order. Something is not where it should be as far as what we see when we look out in the physical and temporal and we go, man, what's my life to be about? Where do I belong? Who do I belong to? Because when our citizenship is in heaven, it changes everything about how you and I interact here in this world. We live for different things. 
We prioritize different things. We spend our money on different things. We treat people differently. We're not attached to the things of this world because these things are passing away. We're looking to a true homeland, to our true king, who is greater, whose kingdom has no end. And it's one that is perfectly righteous and just. There's no injustice. There's no bias. There's no favoritism. There's no cruelty. There's no violence. There's no division. There's no oppression. Because the kingdom of God truly is perfect. And this is the kingdom that you and I have been made a part of. Guys, our heavenly citizenship is greater than whatever earthly citizenship we might have. Because the kingdom of God that we've been made a part of is greater than the kingdoms of mankind. And our king is greater than any any earthly king that we could ever have. People and governments and nations, they'll fail us, they'll pass away, they'll crumble, but guys, Jesus will never fail us. He'll never fail us. He lives forever and his reign has no end. And his righteous and perfect kingdom will never crumble or change. Praise God that we get to belong to and be a part of his kingdom. But but there's more, right? There's more. Wait, don't tune out. Let's consider this other aspect that Paul points out here. of Belonging to God's family, as Paul told us, that we're now members of the household of God. Told you another quote was coming here from John Stott. He wrote this regarding Paul picturing the new Jew-Gentile community as God's family. He said, the metaphor changes and becomes more intimate. You are members of the household of God. A kingdom is one thing. A household or family is another And in Christ, Jews and Gentiles find themselves more than fellow citizens under his rule. They are together children in his family. Paul has just written in the previous verse of the new and privileged access to the Father, which Jews and Gentiles enjoy through Christ. We said that in verse 18. And earlier in the letter, he has enlarged on the blessings of adoption into his family. Chapter 1, verse 5. Soon, he will have more to say about God's archetypal fatherhood, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and about the one God and Father of us all in chapter 4, verse 6. But here, his emphasis seems to be less on God's fatherhood than on the brotherhood into which, across racial barriers, the Father's children are brought. He says, brethren, meaning brothers and sisters, is the commonest word for Christians in the New Testament. 
It expresses a close relationship of affection, care, and support. Philadelphia, brotherly love, should always be a special characteristic of God's new society. Another great insight, and, and I want us to dig into this one some more. And again, as I spoke into in the beginning, we might look at that and go like, ah, oh, man, like maybe for you, your experience in this new family has not always been very great, not always been very warm. Maybe you've had prior church experiences where you came somewhere and you felt like an outsider. You're like, how do I feel this way? Where's the warmth? Where's the love? Where's the Philadelphia, the brotherly love, the affection? Where's the care? Where's the support? Where's the beef? No, I'm just kidding. I don't know why that came into my head, but if I keep saying where, something else might come out. So, But our experience doesn't, doesn't um, diminish God's design. Our experience doesn't diminish God's design. God's design is for this new humanity to be a new family where all of these things really are happening. We really are loving each other with the agape love of God, that love that's unconditional and selfless and other-centered and sacrificial, that love that we saw demonstrated in the person of Christ, in the fact that we may not have seen it or we may not see it as much as we want to, doesn't mean that that's not still what God desires and that God is able to accomplish. We do know that it starts with us, right? Because I don't know how many times I've heard this over the years and, you know, like someone comes somewhere, comes, to, comes into a, a local church body and they're like, man, people didn't reach out. And you know what? Maybe they didn't. You know, I don't, people aren't very friendly. And sometimes they're not. But here's a question to ask that kind of always hits to the heart of the issue. Were you friendly? Right? Because it starts with me. It starts with each of you. How does that environment change? It starts with each of us. How does a family look different? Well, it looks different because each person in the family is walking in humility and obedience to what God has said in his word. So when God's saying, forgive one another, we don't do the opposite. We don't start holding grudges and withholding forgiveness, becoming bitter. When God's word's saying love, we don't kind of like become indifferent to other people and ignore them and kind of like skirt around them and it starts with us. The problem is not with the family that God has created. The problem is each one of us are broken people who are being redeemed. We're being um, sanctified. We're being perfected by the Spirit of God 
every single day. And so when we think about this thing, again, I, I say this just to kind of preface that I don't want us to be, have like this weird thought in our heads as we approach this aspect of, of what God has made us a part of and we're just kind of like, I don't really like that family. See, no matter if we've never had an earthly biological family, that is some people's, that's where they're at. I didn't have a biological family. Maybe we didn't have much of an earthly biological family. Maybe we have one, but it's, it's pretty bad, pretty messed up. Or maybe for some of us, we, we have a great earthly biological family. No, no matter where we find ourselves in one of, those, one of those places, understand that being born again into the family of God is far greater. We're being invited into something that is far greater than the best earthly or biological family. And, and actually, this new family can even help heal wounds if we don't have or don't have much of or have had a bad earthly biological family because our Heavenly Father is the one who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He's the one in Scripture who gives the lonely, the forgotten, the rejected a family. Not only that, there's a love and a fellowship that we can now experience with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we could never experience with blood-related family who don't know Christ because the Spirit of God and the love of God is what binds us together. We aren't just made part of the same kingdom, God's kingdom. We're made part of the same family, God's family. First, this means that, the, that, that God the Father wanted us to be in his family. He wanted to make us his children. And he made that possible by giving his son for us so that through faith in Jesus, we could be born again into this new family. Check out what we're told by the Apostle John. In John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, and then in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, if you've ever wondered, why is there a John? Then there's these other Johns that have a number ahead of them. Well, John's gospel is just considered John. John's epistles, these smaller letters written to individuals or a, a body of believers are, are called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So anyways, just throwing it out there. If you ever wondered why. Here's the Apostle John. He's writing this, John 1, verses 10 through 13. And he's speaking about Jesus when he says he. He was in the world. The world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, notice, not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then in 1 John 3, 1 and 2, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, hold my calls. Just kidding. Beloved, now we are children of God. Like, if we didn't get it before, let me just follow this up. We're children of God. Like, consider what great love this is, that God would call us his kids. He'd make us his kids. We are now children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So there's, there's more God's going to do. But we know, John says, that when, we, when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We are children in our father's house, his household, his family. And it's so important. It really is. It's so important that we know our relationship to him and be confident in that. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. God's done that. He did that because of his great love for me. He made me. He made me his kid. I once was a child of wrath. Now, because of the salvation of Jesus, I am a child of God. But this also means that we are family with one another as his kids. Brothers and sisters in Christ who have been knit together, united by the blood of Jesus, which means, guys, please understand this, get this, receive this, that we need each other. We need each other. Check out what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. He said, for as, many, uh, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Don't those two words not seem right next to each other? Individually members. Like, wait, are we members or are we individuals? We're both. In the household of God, you know, we may get that we're a family, that we're a family together. Like, I get it. We're, we're, we're God's family. This, the church is a family. But still act as individuals who are independent from others. And because of that, end up missing the one anotherness that God has designed for us as members of one another in his family. Maybe we hear about us being family together and automatically in our minds we start looking at others in the family of God as more of a crazy cousin or uncle. We all have them. Isn't that funny? Every, we all have that one wacky like who like you kind of hope that they didn't get the invitation to the family gathering that always just gets awkward and things and they always want to talk to you you grew up in an italian family you get the aunt that just pinches the crud out of your cheek 
Maybe we look at it and we're like, crazy cousin. We're like, okay, well, I'd rather, okay, we're family, but you're the crazy cousin, you're the crazy uncle that, you know, we can't, we can't really stand to be around. We try to avoid. Instead of looking at others in the family of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ, as a beloved brother or sister that God loves and wants each of us to love with his agape love. This truth of what, be, what we've been made a part of, that we are members of the household, the family of God, is not something meant to put us in a place of dread. Like, ah, oh, dang it. Why? Why couldn't he have just left it at being a kingdom? It's a lot easier to just be a, a part of the kingdom because it's like, well, you're over there. You're in your house. I'm in my house. And we're all just kind of like existing around each other, right? And we all have the common goal. We have a, all the same king. But when, it, when he goes further and he's like, but not just a new kingdom, a new family, we're like, oh, man. But not that we, if, if there's any of that bad taste in our mouth, that we would we'd bring those things to the Lord. Some of it might be hurts, genuine things. And we're like, God, I need you to, I need you to heal these things in me because I, I shouldn't have a bad attitude. I shouldn't look at this and kind of think like, why? Why did it have to be a family? Why couldn't it have just been a kingdom? God, would you change that in me? It requires humility. But when we do that, man, what God does in changing how we look out, changing how we interact, changing how we view this thing that God has made us a part of. This is part of God's care for us in making us family, brothers and sisters together. Because while families can be the cause of a lot of hurt, God's family is to be a place, a source of healing and help and strength and growth and care and love and amazing fellowship and unity. That's what God's wanting to do. That's his desire. That's his design for his household, his family, for you and me. And I just want to say this one more time. It starts with you. It starts with me. I want to give one more verse here. Take what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, he's writing to the churches of the region of Galatia. He said, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And I was thinking about this. How many times in Scripture, or even specifically in the New Testament or the epistles, how many times do any of the New Testament writers say something, but then they say, especially? When you see the word especially, don't you go like, wow, I really need to tune into this. Like, this is something God's going like, I don't know that I, uh, right now, just without doing a blue letter Bible search for the word, okay? So don't hold me to this. I don't think this is anywhere else. And each of us have opportunities. We've been made part of the household of faith. And, and Paul's going, do good. 
especially to those who are part of the same family as you, the same household of God, the same household of faith, do good. And if we all took that to heart, what would the household of God, what would the family of God, what would, what would each local church body within the greater body of Christ in the world, what would those places, what would this place here at Calvary Chapel Walnut Creek look like if we just started there? And he wants us to, especially. God, help us to get the especially. Help us to take to heart the especially, Lord, because this is something close to your heart. Guys, know this. God making us part of his kingdom, part of his family, is not an act of cruelty. It's an act of his great love and care for each of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And if this is who we are as the church, those who have been made a part of his kingdom and family, Jesus shedding his blood to make these things our, our reality, our experience. How should these truths affect how we see each other in the body of Christ? How should these truths affect how we view the church and its importance in our lives? How should these truths affect how we see those outside the body of Christ, the unsaved who are still in darkness, still without God's mercy, without his salvation? And how should these truths affect what we're passionate about and what we prioritize, knowing that we've been commissioned by our king and we've been chosen by our father to represent and honor and glorify and make him known in this world and area that he's placed us in. These things we've considered this morning should both encourage and challenge us, and I pray that they will, but we'll continue looking at this closing portion of chapter 2 in our study next week. I'm going to the worship team come back up. Uh, in closing, those who have put their faith in Christ, right, let's just, Revisit this sort of essential thing that Paul's addressing here. Those who have received Jesus' free gift of salvation by grace through faith, we are no longer strangers and foreigners. But now our fellow citizens who belong to God's kingdom with the rest of the saints, and we're members of the household of God. We're children of God. We're family with one another in the body of Christ. As I said earlier, we've not only been brought near by the blood of Christ, we now belong and we have a home. And I pray that more and more we will learn to walk in the realities, uh, the reality of these truths. But look, if you don't know Jesus personally, if you've never humbled yourself before the Lord and, and repented of your sin and, and surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, because it means something to call Jesus Lord. Calling Jesus Lord means you're not. You're not Lord. He's Lord. He's Savior. You've seen it for yourself. How good of a Savior have you been? How good of a Savior have those places and those things that you've gone to to, to kind of like 
help in, in, in circumstances. How perfect of a Savior have those things been in your life? It's only Jesus. Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone is, is how we have access to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And this morning, look, you can, you can go from being a foreigner and a stranger to the things of God, the kingdom of God, the family of God, to being made a part of God's kingdom, a part of His family. And there's no hoops to jump through. There is no hoops to jump through. There is no amount of cleaning yourself up first that's needing to be done. All Jesus is saying is, surrender your life to me. Give your heart over to me. Recognize that you're a sinner in need of salvation and forgiveness. And in that place, he'll meet you and he'll save you. And all these things that we've looked at will now belong to you. And so let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. God, what an amazing thing that you would take us who were far. We were those, Lord, without hope, without Christ, without the promises, without God. But Jesus, you brought us near by your blood. And you've not just brought us near, Lord, you've made it possible for us to be invited in, to be made a part of your kingdom, part of the family of God, becoming a child of God. And Lord, for those of us who are saved already, God, would you, would you challenge us, Lord, in, in some of the areas where maybe our thinking has been off, our, our priorities, our perspectives have been off when it comes to what it means to be a part of your kingdom and what it means to be a part of your family. Would we see, Lord, that this familial element, God, of what you're asking of us, Lord, it does start with us. But that, Lord, you have what we need. You have what we need, Lord, to be the family that you've designed us to be. We're truly, Lord, this family here, this, this church here is a place, it's a source, God, of healing of health, of growth, of care, of support, of transformation. God, of victory over struggles and addictions. Of marriages being healed and reconciled. God, a place where people can find grace and comfort and hope. God, do those things in us. Lord, make these things true of us. That all would know that we're disciples of Jesus by the love that we have for one another. And God, lead us. Help us to walk more and more in the reality of these truths. Living for your kingdom living for your glory, God, living out your commission of being disciple makers who bring the gospel of Jesus to others. But look, if you've joined us this morning and you've never first opened your heart to the Lord, 
If you're a stranger and foreigner this morning and you don't even want to admit that you are, humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself before, that's where it all starts. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And if that's you and you need Jesus' salvation, you need his forgiveness. You're in the right place. This is your time. Would you raise your hand if that's you? I want to pray for you this morning. That Jesus would come into your life. He'd give you hope. He'd he'd bring healing. He'd forgive and cleanse. That anybody at all this morning, you'd say, that's me. I want Jesus. I want these things that you're talking about. God, you see every heart. Lord, you created each of us, God. None of us are a mistake. God, each of us are are deeply loved by you. And God, those that maybe even this morning, they're reluctant to raise a hand, but Lord, you're working. And God, I know that you're working in hearts this morning. God, I can sense it in this place. That Lord, you would draw those people. Maybe now is not the moment for them. They don't want to raise their hand now, but Lord, maybe it's when they get in their car, God. Maybe it's, it's later today, but would they not wait any longer, God? Would they know, Lord, that you've not guaranteed another moment of life to every one of us? Now's their time. And Lord, even in, in the quietness of their own minds, God, would they call out to you, Lord? Would they humble themselves and confess their sin and repent, Lord, and surrender their lives to you, inviting you in? Lord, would you save souls today? Would you transform lives today, God? Would you change minds today, God? And Lord, would you empower us by your spirit, Lord, to be those citizens, to be those sons and daughters, those brothers and sisters in your family that you called us to be. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for you, God. You are amazing, Lord. You are good. And Lord, we want to respond to your word in these songs of praise and the taking of the communion elements and maybe for some receiving prayer in the corner of the room. Lord, would you continue to have your way here? In Jesus' name, amen.